Good morning, everyone. Luke chapter 9, verse 18 to 36. Luke 9, verse 18 to 36. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, What did the crowd say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked. What do you say I am? Peter answered, the, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me, and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came the from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. Thank you, Maker. Morning, folks. Good to have you along today. If you're new or visiting, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are going to stick out in that chapter in Luke, Luke 9. Um, but before we start, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, the God over all, we do ask that as we come to your word this morning that you would give us clarity and humility to see you as you are, not as we think you will be. And we pray it for Jesus' name. Amen. 
Alrighty, friends, I've said it before and I'll say it again. In fact, you stick around long enough, you'll hear it multiple times. The truth is this, everyone's got an opinion about Jesus. Doesn't matter whether you come from a religious background, if you come from a non-religious background, everybody has an opinion of Jesus. You might like him, you might hate him, maybe you've never even given it two seconds of thought. Even that is an opinion. You see, it's an opinion that says he's not worth worrying about. It's an opinion that says there are no consequence or importance to actually understanding him. It may not be a very sensible or informed opinion, but it is an opinion nonetheless. Because when it comes to the man, Jesus of Nazareth, everybody's got an opinion. It's not a new phenomenon. All right? I'm not saying that it's actually uh, um, brand new or shiny or anything like that. It's always been the case. In fact, if you noticed, it's, a, it's the very first thing we see in our passage today. Jesus enters the stage in history in the ancient Near East and it immediately seems to have had people speculating about who he was. Look at it with me, actually. Look at it. Turn to your Bibles if you've got them there. Keep them open at Luke 9. Dial them up on your device, whatever you need to do. Luke 9, 18 says this. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? In other words, what's the word on the street? What's the general chatter? How's my hashtag trending on CityGate, the ancient Near Eastern uh, equivalent of Facebook? Um, and notice that there's no shortage here or no delay in the disciples responding. I mean, clearly Jesus has made enough waves in society at this point. There's no shortage of options or opinions being bandied about. Verse 19, they say. They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Everyone's got an opinion about Jesus. It's interesting that they go for those three options. Why do you suppose they go for those in particular, Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets of old? What, what is it about those three characters that, that makes uh, you know, seems to be the popular idea? Was it because, I'm just speculating here, was it because Jesus' manner and style were similar to John the Baptist, JTB as I like to call him? You know, bit of a nomad, bit of a wanderer from the backwoods in Galilee, had a bit of a, a direct style of teaching that was edgy and hard to dismiss. Is that why they went for John the Baptist? What about Elijah? Was it because his reputation, Jesus' reputation, I mean, as a miracle worker, as a, a performer of startling deeds, had a, an Elijah-esque ring to it? I mean, there'll be a table come up on the screen for you to sort of feel the comparison you know, Elijah performed miracles. He performed the miracle of parting the, the River Jordan in 2 Kings 2.8. Jesus calmed the winds and the wave on the Sea of Galilee. We just read a couple of weeks ago. We saw Elijah, he at one point prayed for a child's life to be restored and that child come back to life, 1 Kings 17.22. Jesus also calls a dead girl back to life. In fact, Elijah also had this seeming well you're seemingly able to produce food out of nothing 1 king 17 14 you remember he goes to a, uh, a widow and her son and she's only got a little bit of flour and a little bit of water and he says no no make me a cake it won't run out and it doesn't run out and then what did we read last week jesus fed five thousand plus with nothing more than five loaves and two fishes there's something clearly there's some similarities, if you like, between the miracles that God did through Elijah and the miracles that Jesus performed of his own accord. Is that the reason? And, and not just that, in fact, I think there's more to that story. There's a prophetic expectation in the book of Malachi. Malachi 4.5 will come up on the screen. 
that God would send Elijah as the forerunner before his own arrival to his people, before he sends his Messiah. You know, the Jews are still waiting for that Messiah to come. Do you realize that? Orthodox Jews still to this day, when they celebrate the Passover, there is a point in that celebration where someone will go and open the front door to hopefully welcome and usher in Elijah. They've got a table, a place set for him at the table. They've got a cup of wine ready to go. They're still waiting for Elijah to return. If they're expecting him today, how much more were they expecting him 2,000 years ago? I think this is part of the expectation. They see something in Jesus that is clearly significant and so Elijah-esque that they think this might be him. But what, about, what, what might others go for one of the Old Testament prophets right back to life? You know, was it something just about Jesus again that he is so countercultural in his teaching that like one of the Old Testament prophets, it was just difficult to ignore. See, whatever the reasons, whatever the reason, the fact remains that everybody then and everybody now has an opinion about Jesus. In fact, the only difference between now and then is that there's just more of them. <laughs> Put 2,000 years on it and uh, the options of the opinions have only multiplied. Right? You line everyone up down the town and ask them who Jesus is, you're going to get a stack of different responses. In fact, I want to sort of split them up largely, if you like, broadly speaking, into two groups. Religious attitudes towards Jesus, secular opinions about Jesus. Let me give you a feel for some of them. If you ask a Muslim person who they think Jesus is, they will tell you that Jesus was a prophet. An important prophet, but just a prophet. He didn't die and rise. He wasn't the son of God. He was a prophet, an important prophet. In fact, the second most important prophet to Muhammad, but he's just a prophet. That's what they think about Jesus. Orthodox Jews think of Jesus as just another one of many phony, fake messiahs. It's not that they don't understand that he claimed to be the messiah, but others did too. And they just lump him in the category of someone who claimed and couldn't produce evidence of being the Christ. That's who they think Jesus is. Mormons teach that Jesus is the literal brother of Satan, of Lucifer, the product of God and one of his celestial wives. They still teach that Jesus is the saviour and redeemer of the world, but not as God incarnate, rather he's an exalted spirit child of God the Father. In fact, I think it was the fifth president of the the Church of the Latter-day Saints, um, President Lorenzo Snow, who came up with this line, who said, as man, is, is, as man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may become. Just think about that for a minute. As man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may become. Joseph Smith taught the same thing in 1844. It is an accepted doctrine of the, of the Church of, of the Latter-day Saints that you can expect to achieve godhood. Christ is someone who has already gone before you, who has been exalted. He was just a man exalted to God's status, and you can expect the same. It's an opinion about Jesus. Jehovah Witnesses, they teach that Jesus is the incarnation of the archangel Michael. They call him God. It's a little g-god. He's not almighty God. That's Jehovah. That's the Father God. They call him mighty God. A little G God. It's essentially a polytheistic sort of view. Many gods. Jesus is one of them. And that again is markedly different from biblical Christianity, which takes its lead from the Bible, funnily enough. (laughs) Not from an extra book or or a modern day prophet's opinion. And when you look at the Bible, we we talked about this a few weeks ago, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the second person of the triune God. There is one God. 
and he is three persons. Difficult as it may be to understand, the Bible forces this upon us. I think I call it the unavoidable trinity. I mean, I could go on and, and you could see that today there are radically different opinions about who Jesus is amongst, amongst religious folk. And these differences make substantial, these differences rather make substantial differences to what you think about life now and how you conceive of the future to come. And that's nothing to say the secular opinions. I haven't even dealt with the other column yet. I'll do them quickly because people are here that suggest that Jesus is anything from a pure fairy tale to something like a legend or a myth, you know, like St. George, the knight, St. George, you know, the English. I mean, I like St. George, don't get me wrong, you know. He probably tripped over a lizard when he was a kid and then in the, in, you know, centuries later, he's slaying fire-breathing dragons. It's that sort of stuff. The myth and legend sort of stuff. Other people saw Judas just as purely a radical or a political activist. Some would take that he is a guru or a madman. The Jews of the day actually labelled him a demoniac. Someone who was demon-possessed. We'll see it in Luke 11 a little bit later. He's Beelzebub. It's by the prince of demons that he cast out demons. Others will say he's just misunderstood. The point is, everyone's got an opinion about Jesus. The question really needs to be asked, though, what's your opinion about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? And not only that, is it a reasonable opinion to hold? Does it actually square with the evidence? You see, this is where Jesus goes next, because at the end of the day, Jesus is not interested in what you think others say about him he wants to know what you say about him look at it there in verse 20 with me look at how quickly jesus turns that question for being one of the uh the, you know the popular sphere to being a very personal one he says in verse 20 but what about you who do you say that i am it's a great question it is a question that every person here today needs to think through carefully have you actually personally stopped and taken stock of that question and given an answer? I'm saying that to everyone specifically, but let me pick on one group just for the sake of clarity. I'm going to pick on kids of Christian parents here today. It doesn't matter whether you're a young or an old kid of a Christian parent. If you grew up in a Christian home, who do you say Jesus is? Because you notice that Jesus' question there is not what did or do your mum and dad say about Jesus? It's not what were you told to think about Jesus. It's who do you say that I am? You can't catch Christianity. Not like COVID anyways. And implied in that question then is the question or the idea that you ought to have a reason for why you're saying what you say. What's the rationale for your opinion? Why do you say this? What's your logic? Think back to your maths test as a kid. Show you're working out. Have you? Can you answer that question? See, it's interesting, I find, to see how people try to avoid this question when it's put so personally. It's like when you're in the crosshairs. It's interesting, I found, how people become expert politicians and masters of vagary, spitting out all sorts of you know, virtual word salads where there are many syllables spoken and nothing said at the exact same time. You ever heard what people give those sort of answers? I, mean, I remember a particular occasion. It was after... a uh, one of our mission events out at the RAF base, we had one of the guys from Fighting Words Ministries come and talk. It was, the title was Know Your Enemy. You, some of you might remember that. And, and Pete Ritchie was giving a, a gospel explanation. Know your enemy. Your enemy is sin and death. 
And Jesus has conquered those, and he's proven that by his resurrection from the dead. And afterwards, uh, the chap that I'd taken along, I was driving back with him. I was driving along Mitchell Road. It's one of those crystal clear moments that I remember. And I said to him, what do you make of that? What do you, ma- you, you hear the claim? That's a huge claim, isn't it? What do you make of Jesus' resurrection? His only answer was, well, well, you know, there's a lot of smart people who don't believe it happened. And that's all he was willing to say. Essentially, he wasn't prepared to own his own decision, nor was he able to accept that there are lots of people who do believe that it happened, smart people included. Instead, he simply just to, he refused to think through the question personally or carefully. Essentially, he just voted by proxy. Oh, I'll just go with that model. As an aside, can I say, can I commend these types of questions, these very simple questions, as an excellent tool for evangelism? If you're a Christian here today, what I, what I fear too often we do as Christians is we get trapped in this sort of straight-jacketed thinking that suggests that evangelism is purely you talking. That the only thing that equates to genuine evangelism is you performing a monologue about the gospel uninterrupted while somebody else listens. Don't get me wrong at this point, I'm a big fan of monologues. Especially uninterrupted ones. But is that all evangelism is? Is it, it, I mean, that is the pure proclamation of the gospel. It's what we're aiming for, don't get me wrong. But how often do you get that golden opportunity from your colleague at work or the mum at the playground that's pushing the, the swing with her kid on it next to you? Or how often have you had the bloke riding next to you on your mountain bike journey sort of say, uh, hey, can you just talk about the gospel? I just want to listen. How often have you had that opportunity? I can tell you how many times I've had that opportunity. Once in 12 years. Once in 12 years where a guy actually said to me, Tim, what is the gospel? It was Ollie the Persian hairdresser. It was in, 2007, in 2013. It's significant enough for me to know because it was, again, simultaneously the longest, worst haircut I've ever had. It was, I'm not even joking. I came home and said, Tiana, can you just shave it off? This is abominable. <laughs> but it was also one of the best conversations I've had. The point is, the point I'm trying to make, that's a different story. You can ask me about Ali the Persian hairdresser later. The point that I'm trying to make is how often do those golden goose scenarios crop up? How often do they present themselves? Does that happen to you lately? And if it doesn't happen, what do we do? Do we just have to hang around Persian hairdressers hoping for another opportunity, another tee-off moment? No. What I want to say is you take Jesus' lead here and you ask the question, who do you say Jesus is? What's your present opinion about Jesus? Followed up by the next very helpful question. Why do you say that? What are you basing it on? And then here's a new idea. Let them speak. Do you see how this opens up the door for evangelism by creating the space first to understand and meet people exactly where they're at and at the same time create opportunity to respectfully challenge people's assumptions, especially when they're way off and not consistent with the evidence? Asking somebody what they think opens the door to actually suggest where they may be a little bit off. Those two questions give rise to opportunity for all sorts of follow-up conversations, even the possibility of actually inviting someone to investigate Jesus with you. Hey, have you read Jesus? Have you read the Bible for yourself as an adult? I ask that question to people all the time because people have an opinion about Jesus. What do you base it off? Ah, oh, I just got a bit of a thought about that. Have you ever read the Bible as an adult? Would you like to? <laughs> Those two simple questions, helpful ways to develop, I want to say, genuine, loving conversations with people where the gospel can be proclaimed over and over again in personal and accessible ways. 
Can I encourage you? Put those in your back pocket. In fact, do something now. Write for me. Write for yourself. Write someone's name down on your service outline who you could ask these questions to. If you're a Christian here today, write someone's name down. Someone that you might ask these questions to, either in the lead up to Christmas as a means of inviting them to our Christmas service, that'd be a good opportunity. Or maybe there's a family member who you know you'll see again this Christmas. It might be the first time for the year or the first time in a couple of years. Someone who knows that you're a Christian, but who you've never asked their opinion about Jesus, write their name down. Take a moment. I'm not going to check. Maybe I will. But I want you to be considering this seriously. And, and, the, and if you're not a Christian here today, I mean, it's terrific that you're here. I hope you come back. But can I ask you, what's your opinion about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? And why do you say that? I'm going to give you a moment. Answer those two questions if you're not yet a Christian or a follower of Jesus. Write someone's name down if you are. I'm going to take probably what will be five seconds. It will seem like an eternity to me. We all know that silence is not my strong point. Here it is. Right. <laughs> That's about the best I can do. All right. In fact, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray right now. Let me pray right now that actually you might not just... Don't expect that God creates. Don't expect God to give the opportunity. Look to create the opportunity. You're going to see people over Christmas. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do ask. Right now, we stop and we ask that whoever you've put on our heart and our mind, whoever we happen to have written on our piece of paper here, someone that we know doesn't know you, we don't just ask that you would provide the opportunity for us to ask them a question about their, who they say Jesus is. Lord, give us the conviction and the love and the care for that person to create the opportunity where we might ask them, who do you say Jesus is and why do you say that? And through that conversation, Father, would you please reveal yourself to that person through Christ? We ask it for your glory. Amen. Friends, I really, I, I genuinely, I hope you do uh, take the opportunity to ask those questions to someone in the lead up to Christmas, maybe over the holidays, over the course of 2022, over the course of your life, all right? They're two simple questions. Put them in your back pocket. Use them often. And the reason I'm so keen for you to think through that is because it's actually... Well, it leads nicely into our third point on our outline. It's because it precisely lines up with what Jesus came to do. Do you realize it's the third point you'll see on your outline that Jesus came to challenge and change people's opinions and their expectations about God? It's part of what he does. He comes to challenge and change people's expectations about God. See, fundamental to Jesus' earthly mission was to reveal and therefore by extension to challenge and change where necessary people's expectations about God and about God's Messiah. Look at it in the text. I'm not making this up. Verse 20, Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, God's Messiah. And how does Jesus respond to Peter's suggestion? Have a look at verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone this. And then he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And on the third day, raised to life. I mean, if I'm reading it with a bit of a strange inflection there, it's because it just seems really bizarre. Jesus doesn't reject Peter's confession. Instead, he tells him not to tell anyone. Why does he do that? Have you ever read those sort of statements by Jesus and be pu- and puzzled over them? Why wouldn't Jesus want uh, him, his disciples to tell people about him? 
And the answer is because he first needs to teach them, in fact, reteach them, challenge and change, even the disciples, he needs to challenge and change their expectations about what it means for him to be God's Messiah. It's exactly what he does next. Jesus says, God's Messiah? Well, that's synonymous with me being the Son of Man. He doesn't reject Peter's confession. Yeah, he said, and the Son of Man. He, he's here lining these up. These are the two, and the, the one and the same thing. If you're wondering why Jesus has changed the title here, it's because it's a, it's a direct reference to Daniel 7, the Son of Man. Daniel's vision of God, the Ancient of Days, sitting on the throne when suddenly, in fact, rather than just me, let me, let me read it to you. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus says, yeah, I'm God's Messiah. Yeah, I'm the Son of Man. And he ties these two things together. Now, that's a great start. That would be music to the ears of the downtrodden Jewish guys that he is with. That he's saying, yeah, I'm God's Messiah, I'm the Son of Man. That would be, that's go time in, the, in, the, in these guys' ears. This is go time for God restoring the kingdom to Israel, for kicking out the Romans and getting on with the program of restoring God's covenant pro- uh, promises. You know, the ones made back to Abraham and King David, finally we can get back on track as a nation. The Messiah is here. See, that's, that's basically what the Jews expected from the arrival of God's Messiah, this warrior-type leader, someone to free uh, free them from the Romans. But it's not what they should have expected. (laughs) See how quickly Jesus redirects their expectation in new and surprising ways? That sounds like the understatement of the the century. New and surprising. Verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer? What? Must be rejected by religious leaders? That doesn't sound right. Must be killed and raised to life three days later? Doesn't seem to, on the face of it to square with a, you know, a reading of Daniel 7. The one who comes and is given all authority, dominion and power, whose kingdom will never end. What is Jesus talking about? How can those two things line up? You see, Jesus is challenging and changing their expectations about what it means for him to be the Messiah, what it means for him to be the Son of Man, what it means for him to be the one with divine authority and rule. It's not by brandishing a sword or snapping his fingers and giving him their best life now. It's about a selfless sacrifice which will, by which he will offer people forgiveness and peace and fulfillment for eternity in a kingdom that will never end. On the other side of death. See, friends, the truth of Jesus, of who he is, of what he's done, of what he is doing, of what he reveals about God, remember, I'm thinking Hebrews 1.3 should come up on the screen for you, that it says that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. This means when you look at Jesus, you see God. He's the one who represents him in exactness. He is him. This is still challenging and changing people's expectations today. And it needs to. Can I say it needs to? Because think about this. What are, the, what are the common expectations that people have about God in our day and age? What are the common expectations people have about what it means to be a Christian? Do you know one of the ways you can work that out? You can look at, uh, you can actually sort of reverse it a little in a funny kind of a way. 
And you can look at what are the reasons that people give for rejecting God. Because often that's what they expect of God. What what I mean, most commonly the reasons people reject the notion or the existence of God is essentially because their experience of life hasn't stacked up with their expectations of what God should be or do. You see what I'm saying there? You see the point I'm trying to make? Often it is because people's experience of life has not stacked up with their expectations of what God should be or do, and therefore they say, that's why I'm not a Christian. That's why I won't follow. Let me, let me put some meat on these bones here. You ever heard this one? If God was real, or if Christianity or Jesus were legit, then why is there so much suffering in the world? You heard that argument before? I mean, I go there first because it's the most obvious, common, reasonable question to ask. If there was a God, if Christianity were real or true, if Jesus was legit, then why is there so much suffering in the world? Do you notice there's an expectation embedded in that? If God were real, if Christianity were true, if Jesus was so powerful and good, then there'd be no pain. Then there'd be no suffering in the world. That's the expectation. And because everybody experiences pain or suffering of some kind, some much worse than others, this is then used as evidence that either Jesus is not powerful, Christianity is not true, or that there just isn't, it just isn't any God. And on the surface, it sounds like a good argument, doesn't it? It seems to strike a chord with us, I think. Perhaps you've heard it before, perhaps it's something you're still personally struggling with. That's okay. But I want you to realize it's based on an expectation, a faulty expectation, that you won't find anywhere in the Bible, nor anywhere in the life of Jesus who is God incarnate and who as God incarnate reveals to us who God is and what you can expect, not just from life now, but life in the hereafter. You will not get that expectation from Jesus. Don't get me wrong, that argument does disprove the notion of some gods. It disproves the notion of the fairy godmother type God from Cinderella who waves a wand, turns a pumpkin into a carriage and sends you to the ball. It disproves that notion of God. It disproves the notion of God as a genie in a bottle like Aladdin who you rub the lamp and you get your wish. It disproves that theory of God. That's not him. But it does nothing to disprove the reality of the God of the Bible who is Jesus. The God who enters into human suffering in the person and work of Jesus to bring an end, an ultimate end to that same suffering. That's what Jesus comes to do. That's what God's Messiah came to do. That's what this Jesus makes plain as he challenges and changes the expectations of the disciples. They expected victory over Rome. Jesus said, no, it means rejection. It means suffering at the hands of his own people. It meant execution. It meant resurrection. Jesus is still challenging people's expectations. What did the disciples make of this at the time, though? What did they do with this strange new development? We'll actually read later on in this chapter, verse 45, that they didn't understand it at all. (laughs) In fact, it even says that the meaning was hidden from them at this point. More on that in, in coming weeks. But notice that there's a massive challenge and a shift to what they ought have expected the Messiah to mean. But it's not the only expectation that Jesus comes to, to challenge and change. In fact, did you notice the next one? So Jesus also sought to challenge their expectations of what it meant for them to be his disciples. He came to challenge the expectation of what it looked like to be a follower of Christ. Now, you ought to pay attention here, folks. You ought to lean into this one because this is also a common misconception or a faulty expectation of Christian followers even today. 
Essentially, the expectation, as it, as it is now often, seems something in the order that if Jesus has all the power and the authority, over, has all the power and authority over the elements, over disease, over sickness, over spiritual forces, even over death, and we've read these time and time again in Luke in the last few weeks, if Jesus has that kind of authority and power, and I'm on Jesus' team, you beauty. It should be beer and Skittles all the way out. Sunshine, lollipops and rainbows from here on in. That's the logical expectation, isn't it? Certainly the expectation that's pushed by a lot of claiming Christians that if you express faith in Jesus, you will expect your best life now. You should expect to walk in total victory in all aspects of your life. That all you need to do is pray in Jesus' name and you can name and claim your heart's desire. You know, tragically what I'm doing there is I'm actually quoting so-called Bible teachers. Those inverted commas are not my makeup sort of you know, reached out of the bottom of my head. No, I'm actually quoting people who claim to be teaching the Bible when they say that. It's disgraceful. Because you notice how out of kilter it is with the expectations that Jesus himself sets down for those who are going to follow him? For what you should expect if you truly want to be his disciple? Verse 23, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Just think that through for a minute. Deny yourself? He's not talking about going going without chocolate every now and again. He's not talking about sign your name up to a cause of you know participating in dry july or october you know every year he's not even talking about suspending your fashion sense and grow a mustache in november he's not good as those things may be this is not what he means by denying yourself it's not 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 a kind of self-inflicted fast from a guilty pleasure he literally means forget yourself Stop pretending that you are your own king or queen. Stop pretending that you know what's best even for your own life. Deny yourself and instead pick up your cross daily. That is, consider your life as forfeit. Like a dead man walking, like one condemned to die, walking out to the place of crucifixion, carrying your own cross member. Consider yourself and your life like that. And then follow Jesus. Because that's literally what he's about to do. He's about to go to Jerusalem, where though he tells the truth, he will be beaten, mocked, and made carry his own cross to the place where they crucify him. Now, why the heck is Jesus saying all this? This does not seem to be the kind of speech that will win many people to follow your cause. Certainly not what many non-Christians expect that Christianity is about. And sadly, it's not how many Christians live. But it's exactly what Jesus is calling people to. It's exactly what Jesus is calling you to. Make no mistake about that. You see, this is the greatest, I think, the greatest challenge to the expectations about God or about being a follower of Christ that I can fathom or express. And it remains true to this day. If your expectation about being a follower of Jesus doesn't match with what Jesus has just said here, then abandon your present thinking, radically change it because you're barking up the wrong tree. Jesus is calling you to a purpose and a reality beyond what you can imagine and far different from what you would otherwise expect. He's calling you to be part of a far bigger, a far more significant, more important story than you can naturally conceive of. Something that even actually outweighs and outshines anything the earth has to offer. So much so that even death is not a hindrance to being part of this larger purpose. In fact, death is expected. (laughs) 
Martin Luther King Jr. said once, and look, there's people who have said this sort of thing a thousand times or other. I'm going to give the nod to Martin, Link- uh, Martin Luther King Jr. at this point. He said something to the effect of, you haven't truly lived until you've found something worth dying for. It's a cracking good quote. I love it. In fact, I think it's such a good quote is because it seems, to, it seems to ring a bell deep inside the human psyche somewhere because people do die for all sorts of ideologies, you realise. People die for all sorts of causes or principles. Heck, people die for whales. Have you ever seen the, 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 the videos of the Greenpeace fellas throwing themselves in front of the whaling ships? Nothing if not committed. And there's nothing wrong with having strong convictions and strong principles. But if the convictions and the principles you are willing to die for are anything less than the ultimate reality that Jesus is speaking about here, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your life. Because true meaning and true purpose and ultimate reality cannot be found outside of following Jesus. Even if it means your death. Look at how Jesus puts it in verse 24. He says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. And then he adds verse 25, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? In other words, what on earth could possibly be worth trading in for your very self, your very soul, your eternal destiny? What on earth could be worth trading that in for? And the answer, of course, is... Nothing. <laughs> Not even 200 years of perfect health, wealth and prosperity, if that were possible, would be worth spending eternity alienated from God and therefore cut off from real and lasting pleasure in his presence. Not even 300 years, not even 4,000 years. I don't care what number you could come up with. It does not stack up against or it wouldn't be worth trading in if you actually were to spend eternity in alienation cut off from the goodness of God. So who do you say Jesus is, folks? Why do you say that? Does it match with Jesus' own claims and the evidence of history? What would life look like? How would it look genuinely different if it did? Friends, there's all sorts of challenges and things here today. There's all sorts of opportunities to, to take again or look again at what Jesus has said and take stock of your own life in comparison. And at the same time, it's not just feel the challenge, folks, but see the invitation at the same moment, the invitation to the greatest reality available, a, a life bound to Christ, which means that the penalty and the sting of death have already been dealt with, conquered, paid in full, and the sure hope of eternity guaranteed to all those who would deny themselves and follow Christ wherever he would lead. Now, I'm looking at the time, and I haven't even got to the fourth point on your outline. I'm not going to do it. The fourth point there basically says, only the people who reject God are the ones, or the only people who reject Jesus are the ones who haven't understood God. I would stand by that. I think the transfiguration helps us to sort of uh, understand that. But I'm going to stop here, and I'm going to use actually some of those ideas as we pray, as we wrap up. Would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would now do for each person here that which that we cannot and will not do on our own that you might actually open our eyes to see christ for all his glory just like he did on the on the mountain for james and john and peter that we might see him for all his worth father for those who don't yet know you reveal yourself to them through christ so that when they see christ they see and know that he's you 
And for those of us who here already do know you, would you please sharpen our eyes, sharpen our images, enlarge our vision of Jesus, so much so that we cannot leave the same tomorrow, but instead that we would be willing to lay aside anything and everything for the sake of following and listening and obeying Jesus as Saviour and King. And Father, we are completely dependent on you, so we ask that you would work out these amazing truths and this amazing reality in our lives in ways we cannot yet imagine or fathom, in ways that really do honour and glorify you above all else. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.